0: We're listening to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Our visitor industry appears to be bouncing back, but what effect will the war in Ukraine have on travel? Will the rising costs of oil and goods and services due to ongoing supply issues dampen our recovery? For that, we turn to economist Paul Brubaker of TZ Economics. His outlook for the rest of 2022, expect more of the same. Our painful pandemic roller coaster ride isn't over yet.
1: The conflict in Ukraine, the invasion of Ukraine, represents a significant geopolitical risk. And when things like that happen, there's not much you can do about the inflation that comes with it. The deeper issue, of course, is the nature of the economic recovery, which has been turned out in retrospect, was overstimulated by um, fiscal policy um, interventions and uh, starting with the CARES Act in March 2020 and then the American recovery, something the ARPA, the Biden follow on in um, March 2021. So, and both in, in each case, were about $2 trillion injections of purchasing power to households and businesses. And, uh, you know, 4 trillion, 3 trillion might've done it. Um, but we know that now. and at the time we were dealing with the crisis that um you know a year ago didn't have much more than the prospect of support from vaccination the vaccines were just just rolling out so you know you, you do what you can at the time you can and then things happen like the russian invasion of ukraine that you were planning on that complicated and then as you point out the supply chain disruptions are not just a reverberating, ongoing, uh, you know, reflection of the initial shock of shutting down factories and whatnot here and there because of the the early days of the pandemic. It's also a reflection of each of these variants that, you know, evolution um, and mutation Uh, make inevitable but in particular the delta wave in the summer of 2021 and then the omicron wave more recently this winter and i'm pretty sure there's going to be a delta cron wave you know a ba.2 wave which in the terms we're talking about maybe doesn't present itself in terms of mortality and we're evidently here in the state of hawaii we're not even measuring case counts anymore on a daily basis it's hard to of course because a lot of people have home tests but the point is that we could have yet another wave, maybe not be on top of it as much statistically, um, but it will it will have a disruptive impact yet again, as each of the prior. Uh, More recent waves have had on this uh, supply chain. That's just the roller coaster we're going to be on. You can see the path ahead. And the problem here is that we're bouncing around and we don't really know what comes next.
0: I guess I think of that, you know, that phrase, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger because it just seems like, okay, just when we thought we would get back on the cliff, something pushes us down again. Right now we're dealing with fuel prices climbing cost climbing. You know, Matson just told their customers last week that they're going to raise the rates, what, 7.5% next month. So, you know, I guess the bottom line is it what, we just spend less? Will fewer tourists come because airfare prices will creep back up?
1: The transmission or the pass-through from energy commodity prices to the final costs of certain goods and services, and you mentioned transportation services, it's never quite one for one, so it sort of depends on conditions in the particular industry you're talking about. So for example, in transportation services, while there are backlogs and you know, supply chain disruptions in the main Asia to the US West Coast trade, there aren't any to Hawaii. So the you know, Matson and Pesha Hawaii continue to serve Hawaii with full container ships and there are no container ships parked outside Honolulu Harbor waiting to be offloaded. And as an industry, ocean surface transport industry that's operating at a you know pretty good volume, and making money pretty you know pretty decently. Uh, they don't have the room to sort of they can't. Add an additional vessel. that takes a long time to rotate in a new vessel. For example, I mean, decades. Uh, really, if, for example, advocates of reform of the Jones Act were to succeed in the more accessible portions of that agenda, which might involve sourcing vessels that are made abroad that are less expensive, that still would take. You know, that's still not going to solve the problem. Even if they were more fuel efficient, which they probably aren't that still wouldn't solve the problem that the carriers face today of higher fuel costs. And in those settings, it's not unusual, and sometimes it's just regulated, like with the utility, that, the, that there'd be a pass-through from the increase in the energy commodity price to the final product. Now, with passenger aviation, it's a little different. Because they're operating each coronavirus wave of evolution of uh, mutation as it brings forward these, these waves of infection and death, Omicron being highly infectious, although not as, not as lethal, cause travel to decline for separate reasons completely. And in each case, last summer with Delta and this winter with Omicron, I calculate on you know, if you look at the daily passenger counts or weekly passenger counts, from peak to trough, it was probably a 25% reduction. In travel volume, which means that if you're operating at 80% of the old, you know, full tilt boogie that you know, Hawaii tourism could manage pre-COVID, then you're going from 80 to 60%, if you, a 20%, 25% decline. Right? So let's say we're operating at 70% on average of capacity, bouncing around from 60 to 80% of what Hawaii tourism could yield. Well, in that kind of an area. Raising airfares could be problematic. Raising airfares is always problematic because you know the price elasticity of demand for a long-haul flight, a leisure trip to Hawaii. The sensitivity of travel demand to that pricing means that the airlines have to be really careful. And there's a, so there's a tension there. How much should our shareholders eat in terms of the higher fuel costs? How much of it can we afford? pass on in airfares when our rivals or the other carriers, some of whom may be in a better financial position, don't have to. You might not see as much of an impact in travel demand simply because it's already operating at below capacity. And therein lies an even deeper problem. We're only operating at about 70% of capacity in Hawaii's principal export, tourism. And ironically. The people running around at the legislature and elsewhere saying, we need less tourism. Well, we already have that, everybody. We're not actually solving the problems that tourism creates. It's a very confusing and bewildering situation because we're going to dismantle telescopes, we're going to cut back on tourism, we're we're dismantling parts of the economy when the economy is not doing well to begin with.
0: Everybody, you know, is waiting for the international uh, market to bounce back. I don't know. Do you see anything on the horizon that could delay that? Just
1: because people act like the pandemic's over doesn't mean that it is. And in particular, as you pointed out earlier, it's it's been raging. And East Asia, which when we're talking about international travel, we're really talking about East Asia primarily. I mean, it's crazy. I think Taiwan has had fewer COVID deaths than Oahu. You know, Taiwan with 24 million people has had fewer COVID deaths than Oahu with 1 million people. But now the variants have caught up to even the countries in East Asia with the most rigorous public health policy interventions and thus, you know, hitherto the most successful. And as a result, uh, the reopening there is being delayed. But at the end of the day, that's not actually the constraint. The reason we're operating at at 70% in tourism in Hawaii is not because the foreign visitors aren't coming. We could operate at 100% with just domestic visitors. And we had that for briefly for about a week, maybe the first week of July, 2021, we actually got back to 2019 volumes without significant numbers of foreign visitors because the, the capacity is determined by the lodging inventory and the lodging inventory hasn't changed in 30 years except vacation rentals and most places people want those to be illegal so adding back international visitors may change the spending mix but the ultimate constraint is the lodging capacity and as I say that's been the same for 30 years which is why tourism hasn't grown for 30 years even when it's operating at one hundred percent. And it's not. It's operating at seventy percent. I wouldn't I w won't be holding my breath about the international visitor. And my impression is not entirely clear Hawaii actually welcomes visitors the way it used
0: to. What do you think then we can expect? I mean everybody's looking maybe toward the summer for a recovery, but given these other forces at play, you know, with Ukraine, the fuel prices, inflation, yeah. you you think that's gonna be pushed further? Do
1: yeah, you... my expectation is that this I call it the Groundhog Day recovery where you know, I'm the movie Groundhog Day where Bill Murray wakes up every day and it's the same day over and over. And we wake up every six months and we start the recovery again. And it, it's because of the novel coronavirus. And we've had, I think, four waves now in Hawaii. The last two being the most severe. In the, in the first year, we actually did something about it. But in the last year, we haven't done anything about it. I mean, we just... You know, the government's just been saying, party on you. So sure. And now everybody's ripping off their masks. So I'm almost certain there's going to be another wave. And my guess is that this summer will play out a lot like last summer where we get some momentum going, but nobody's masking. And then they stop masking on airplanes. And then we'll have another coronavirus wave, which will push back the recovery, and then we'll start over again after that wave.
0: So further disruption, just continued uncertainty into 2022?
1: Yeah, I think the way you got to think about it is there will be disruption if only two-thirds of the population is vaccinated. So I think this sort of was kind of this treadmill where we moving forward and then moving back and then moving forward and moving back and sort of trudging along, trudging along, never quite getting back.
0: That was Paul Brubaker of TZ Economics talking to us about our recovery in 2022. He predicts with a continued uncertainty and no end of disruptions, we will see more of the same. Civil Beats Reality Check Today highlights the latest battle on Midway Atoll. Reporter Thomas
2: Heaton joins us today.
0: Good morning, Thomas.
2: Good morning, Catherine. Thanks for having me.
0: Yes. So, you are giving us an update on a, a program that's been underway on Midway Atoll. Share with our listeners what the history is.
2: Sure. So, uh Midway Atoll has had invasive species on it uh, since the first big battle of Midway uh, during World War Two. So what happened was, is, along with the soldiers and the infrastructure and everything else that led to the battle on Midway, uh, invasive species such as rats and mice came along. And that has posed a real issue for the millions of birds that call um, Midway Atoll home, or whether they use it as a temporary stopover on their migrations. So, so re- in 2015, sorry.
0: Go ahead. No, go ahead.
2: So so in 2015, um, sorry. So rats were actually eradicated uh, in 1995, and everyone thought, okay, that's great. That's the end of our issues. We're no longer going to have rats eating through our bird populations. But what has happened, and what was discovered in 2015, was that audacious mice were actually mounting Laysan albatross and biting, eating away at their necks and heads, while these birds were nesting—fully grown, large adult birds nesting with mice just sitting on top of them and eating away.
0: <laughs> it just is that's just so creepy. I'm sorry.
2: <laughs> sure, is vampiric mice. It seems. <laughs>
0: Yeah, so so um, it, it it's yeah. really a dilemma. I mean, so okay, so you, you get rid of one species, now the other one gets more aggressive and, and what are these poor birds to do?
2: Yeah, well and and US Fish and Wildlife has recognized this and they really want to help and ever since twenty fifteen they've been formulating plans um to eradicate this final mammal actually in all of Papahonomukuoka um national monument. Um but they have been facing delays. So they first planned to eradicate the mice in summer of 2019. They felt they weren't fully prepared for it at that stage. So what they did was they delayed for a year. And of course, we know what happened in 2020. Um, and then what came after that, 2021. And here we are in 2022. And supply chain issues are still affecting, um, still affecting us and even Midway Atoll. 1300 miles away from Honolulu
0: I mean that is pretty stunning it's it's so remote and yet um, I mean what's the deal why can't we get what the, the the poison or the bait that they're using
2: yes well this was a question that I had was well we can get rodenticide at the grocery store right We we can go get our traps and our rodenticide if we have an issue But the thing is, with US Fish and Wildlife, they have a very, very specific kind of recipe for their bait that they use, and they have to do months of preparation. In fact, they have to remove Laysan ducks, an endangered species, off Sandy Island, one of three islands in Midway Atoll that is specifically affected by these mice, Um, and Just going back, sorry, that that bait is such a specific formula, such a specific recipe that their suppliers can't actually get everything that they need to deliver it. And we're talking about 10 containers, 10 40-foot containers worth of this bait that they're going to spread. So it is is a really significant operation from what I've been told.
0: Yeah, so uh, just another, I guess, delay uh, while they get all those chemicals that they need um – and so, you know, what happens to these mice? They're not in check.
2: Yes, so I've been told, you know, this this isn't an issue that is going to see the extinction of laysan albatross over the course of a year. Um, however, if left unchecked, uh, you know, the, the experts believe that this could actually eventually compromise the global population. So while at this stage maybe not so much of an issue. Um, in the future, it could really become one. Um, and as for the mice populations, they breed very, very efficiently and they breed with the seasons. Um, but, yeah, as as I said, it might not be an issue for now, but it's one that people really want to nip in the bud.
0: Well, uh, it just seems crazy. I mean, the, the lengths that we go to to protect the species, I mean, moving you know, um, all of those uh, uh, birds off the island. Uh, But I guess that's that's how you do it.
2: Yeah, and it kind of harkens back in some ways. I guess there are fears that, this might have some collateral damage with other species, but um, I think that's really why the uh, fish and wildlife are going to such lengths to remove the and duck and make sure it's off-season for the and albatross.
0: Well, fascinating story, but thank you so much, Thomas.
2: <laughs> no, thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: That was reporter Thomas Heaton with today's Reality Check. You can read his story at civilbeat.org. The documentary film, Waterman, about the life of Duke Kahanamoku, debuted at the Hawaii Film Festival last year, and it's set to screen in consolidated movie theaters across Hawaii later this week. Billy Pratt, one of the co-producers, spoke with us about how humbling the experience was, being part of a larger, powerful story.
3: I have to say it was quite rewarding and probably one of the greatest treasures that I'll have. I you know, had a discussion with my father of, uh, a while back, maybe over the holiday, the previous, not this past Christmas, but the year before. And, you know, I never fancied myself. I, I never thought I'd put on my resume that I actually was involved in the uh, making of a film. It's very interesting, excellent process. I was approached a few years ago, just prior to COVID, by a couple of producers and the director of the film, the director who really, the, the creation and the, the creativity and the brainchild of the whole finished product is really Isaac Coliseum. And I was contacted as a waterman. They found me finishing a one-man outrigger canoe race. And they were led to me by a few different friends who had said, you really should reach out to Billy Pratt. He has the, the context. He's not only a waterman in these different disciplines, but i have probably the long-tenured person on the Duke Kanamoku Foundation Board. And I think that's an important distinction because what we do as a mission is we raise funds to provide scholarships uh, and grants to Keiki of Hawaii, who continue to perpetuate Duke's legacy. So, I've been an understudy of Duke for a long time. Uh, I, my grandfather, long before I was even born, um, was kind of asked by Duke to be involved or in charge of the Duke swim team, similar to the way Fred Hemings and Joey Cabell and Paul Stroud um, are part of Duke's surf team. And so that was a great opportunity to meet them, understand the product they were trying to create, and then through my own analysis, try to determine what what the kuleana would be as let's say an alaka'i or a, a protector for Hawaii to make sure that we're passing on the information about Duke that should be known, also considering what the family thought. So I wanted to make sure that we spoke to Kahanamoku descendants and we captured their thoughts and feelings about their great Uncle Duke. And, uh, and then make sure what was real important to me is we're talking about a character who's 131 years old. Duke was born in 1890, August 24th. So 131 years old, four statues in three countries. Obviously, this is somebody who is a force to be reckoned with and somebody who is recognized around the world. So I want to make sure that we continued as a kuleana to transcend this this story by telling it to the next generation. So it was important to me that we not only would be involved with interviewing individuals who knew Duke, but those individuals who are younger than us who should know about Duke and what the significance of the statues in Waikiki, California, as well as Australia and New Zealand stand for. So I think there's a lot there um, to unravel and really to work on. But those were the things that sort of ran through my mind and to meet such an amazing group of people and the creativity and the hard work they put in. But also, I think the the care that they show for Hawaii and wanting to make sure that they did the right thing and they understood the ideology and the concept of Aloha, it, it was just gratifying to be a part of.
0: There's something to be said about saving those stories you know the uh, the authentic stories, and and you know you want to to make sure that what endures uh, rings true, and. You know, I, I'm not a surfer. I maybe, you know, tried windsurfing. But, you know, I'm a swimmer, and I swim mm-hmm. down there by the natatorium. And I, and, and uh-huh. so I always think about the history and how he swam there. And, you know, I, I just read with amusement how, you know, he grew up swimming in the ocean, right? And then when he went and swam in a pool on the mainland for the first yeah. time.
3: <laughs> yeah. 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 Can you imagine, for me, often what I do at a lot of the film screenings is I try to offer a few comments from from the production side so that we can help people put things in the context. Particularly, uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to share the stories of Duke with the schools, you know, with high school kids, because I think that contextually it's a much different thought process. If you look at Duke's lifespan, 1890 to 1968, he lived through the overthrow of the monarchy, World War I, World War II, oppression, inequality of rights between men and women, and constant racism, racism, racism. He also had to uh, traverse the country when he did go to Pittsburgh to swim by ship. It took weeks to get there. There were no cell phones, there were no computers. And once he landed on the coast, he would catch a train. So those are variables for all of us to think about. And once you offer that, people put things into context and think, Gosh! Besides being an incredible athlete, this man was a warrior. He was incredible to go so far and to be able to accomplish so much. And to think that the, the difference between swimming in salt water to fresh water, as you mentioned, and to be in a room, freezing cold temperatures outside, and you're going to be locked inside in a freshwater pool with numerous gentlemen smoking cigarettes the whole time. I mean, there a lot of these pitfalls and things he had to navigate. And I think early in his career when he cramped up and failed, I thought that also set up um, a great opportunity not just for Duke but also for students here to learn about uh, adversity because the greatest accomplishments come following adversity. He failed, and he figured a way out. He stayed on the mainland. A coach saw the potential in him and offered to coach him for free and once he took lessons and as duke was quoted saying i never stopped training once he did that he became virtually unstoppable so i think it's uh it's very impressive you bring up a good point not just to think about the incredible feats and accomplishments he had but to to put it in light of the period that he did it and the fact that there wasn't the technology or the ease of you know commuting and transporting yourself as we have today
0: and people know him as you know the father of surfing you know the ambassador Mr. Aloha you know but I I love the story where he was able to save uh, lives by paddling out uh, on a board and the fact that now when I swim and I see the lifeguards put out their boards in front of the stand when they start their work day you know I think of that it's like wow You know, they can get uh, out there in the water faster with those boards. It's become such a tool for ocean safety.
3: Yeah, you bring a a great point and one that that portion of the film uh, is one of the areas that people always come and brings them literally to tears because they did not know that about them. I, I had a wonderful opportunity prior to the Olympics to share this with a friend in Carissa Moore. And I really felt in my now that it would be important to... To share the film with her because I thought it would be inspirational to her and I recall what we like to do following a screening is to ask the audience what they thought and she like all of us was in tears and she said you know I thought I knew every every single thing about Duke I know I've studied a lot about him ambassador of Aloha surfing swimming gold medals world records but a lot of people didn't recall the 1925 rescue of the the Thelma and the individuals who were lost, there were 17 people aboard the ship. This was off the coast of Newport near, near, what's known as the Wedge body surfing spot. And Duke himself was just in California at the time. You know, he was dabbling a little in Hollywood as an actor, as he was uh, aging as an athlete, and he was just passing by. And nobody was doing anything because the water was so violent. But I believe as a waterman and somebody who has a great comfort in the water, He took it as his kuleana. He took it as his responsibility to be the one to do something. And he saved eight people. Five others perished and four made it to shore on their own. What's amazing is a lot of people saw him as as a hero. And if you, you watch the film closely, you'll see his expression on his face that I think he was embarrassed and felt as if he failed. But to your greater point now, as we look at that as a historical, monumental point, you know they've advanced lifeguarding to have rescue boards along the coast and really i think the the courageousness of someone to take it upon their back to to enter such a risky situation and bring so many people back to life to touch on the context point that we just discussed previously you know you'll see this in the film he was recognized for those achievements it took them 32 years contact to. There was no cell phone and he was the type of person who didn't let anyone know who he saved but we're most certain that every person he saved never forgot him or what he did for them so they finally found him and really brought him to to life in a national TV program to recognize him for those achievements of rescue and uh, it, it just adds more light and really more dimension to an incredible life of one human being.
0: We've been hearing from Kauai's Billy Pratt, one of the co-producers of the film Waterman. He was talking about the legacy of Hawaii's Duke Kahanamoku. We'll have more of our conversation coming up right after a short break.
4: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Queen's Health Care Centers, providing primary care at multiple locations across Hawaii. Learn more by calling
0: 808-691-8200. March is Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month. Did you know the recommended age for screening is now 45 for most people? I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show to find out why the age changed and why to screen so soon and what the best options are. That's today at 630 on The Body Show. On the next Fresh Air, after Sam Waterston. At the age of 81, he's still busy. He's back as District Attorney Jack McCoy in a revival of the original Law & Order series. In the Netflix series Grace & Frankie, his character is married to a man played by Martin Sheen, and in the Hulu series Dropout, he portrays Secretary of State George Schultz. Join us.
5: Beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point...
0: documentary Waterman hits the big screen here in the islands later this weekend. We were talking to one of the co-producers of the film. Billy Pratt is a a Waterman and a member of the Duke Kahanumoku Foundation. We continue our conversation about how all the stars lined up for the release of this film the timing of this film you know knowing the origins and then watching carissa moore you know bring home the gold that was just so amazing and i i, I happened to be down there at Kiwalos. she was down there i think with her dad and they were doing you know a whole yeah. thing with the surf with aloha sign down there uh, yeah. at her spot it's full circle and everybody that worked on this film i think you know must be just riding riding the wave now it, it's so remarkable
3: it, it sure is. Uh, that's a wonderful thought. I, uh, with Carissa, I, I can't say enough great things about her. She really is the embodiment of the a reincarnate of an ambassador of law. She truly lives that life, and that's really what she found watching this film. She knows what she is—the world's best surfer. And she knows what her mission is there. But she said truly, this film helped her to organize in her own thoughts the fact that she is an ambassador of the law and wherever surfing takes her she needs to be sure to share our culture with the world and she carries that every day and you can hear it in her voice um, I, I I just can't speak enough about her and Kai Lenny is another this young generation lives and practice this uh, the, the individual who um, is a very good friend of mine I'm actually the vice chair for his board Dwayne DeSoto plays the Reenactment work of Duke. He is the Duke in the movie. And he has a nonprofit foundation called Nakamakai, Children of the Sea, that does incredible things to teach kids about the availability, the power, the potential that the ocean has for the keiki and teach them how to use it and navigate it uh, and also to protect it. Uh, We do this for free. And there's just all of these ambassadors of Aloha who think this way and give this way and then to think that you have a human gladiator like Laird Hamilton Kelly Slater the greatest surfer in the world and these people are coming on a film you know for no no fee just to talk about Duke because they feel completely galvanized the reason they do what they do is because of Duke and you know, when you add to his list that the same kick that Michael felt uses in swim races yes. or the fact that, you know, Fernando Aguirre was able to finally get surfing into Olympics. That was really a thought or a prognostication by Duke 100 years ago, that surfing is a pretty cool sport. It probably should be in an the Olympics. And here we are still celebrating this, man. So for us, you, you mentioned a key word. So many people who have viewed this film, screened it or watched it all of our film festivals have said, gosh, your timing is incredible because of the Olympics, uh, because of conflict in the world, and the fact that perhaps if this film, which is really, I'd say, a kuleana of Sidewinder films, they, they do a magical job of not only making great product, but they want their product to cause social change. They want this story to resonate for longer than the period that it's in the film house, you know, in a theater house. They want people to understand that this culture of Aloha is a way of life, it's a way to live. And you don't necessarily have to be Hawaiian to exercise Aloha. And we're hopeful that that's the message that carries through. It's wrapped, obviously, in the greatest athlete of his time and the ambassador of Aloha. But it's really more about a story of compassion, humility, and how we all as human beings should, should
0: live. And if there wasn't enough going for this film, the producers were able to snag none other than Jason Momoa of Aquaman and Baywatch fame to narrate the documentary. The film kicks off in consolidated theaters April 1st. It heads to Utah and California, and eventually across the Pacific to Australia and New Zealand. And so we leave you with the trailer of Waterman to whet your appetite.
3: At 14, Duke Hanumoku embraced his responsibility to master the ultimate Hawaiian tradition,
5: becoming a waterman. A waterman is someone who can do everything in the water. As a kid in Hawaii, you wanted to be a waterman, and the Duke was the big kahuna. To us, he's the king of surfing. No American athlete has influenced two sports as profoundly as Duke Kahanamoku. He was on the world stage, even though the world wasn't ready for it. All of a sudden, it's like he's a superstar. Jim Thorpe, Jesse Owens, Jack Johnson, and Lost in that Shuffle is Duke's role as a racial pioneer. He did
1: encounter overt racism. He was able to break a lot of color lines.
3: The amount of pride that he was able to give to his people, he was one of the biggest celebrities in the
6: world. Aloha
7: had come from nowhere to the Olympic team in three months, which is an unrivaled story in
5: Olympic history. He changed the world with a Kahanamoku kick. The same kick that Michael Phelps learned. A superhuman feat. He's bringing a sport that nobody has seen before to their shores. I think the Duke shared
3: surfing with the world because it was the greatest gift that he had received in his life, and he wanted other people to experience it. He rescued so many people. Life-saving wasn't a profession back then. There are true heroes in the world, and he was one of them. Duke accomplished the seemingly impossible.
6: The story of one of America's greatest icons. When the world saw Duke, they saw Hawaii.
4: Report for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Pacific American Lumber on Oahu with neolith sintered stone, a heat, stain, and scratch-resistant surface for indoor and outdoor countertops, flooring, and walls. PACAMLumber.com. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of
6: today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm John J. Prendergast, author of In Touch. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how to tune in to the inner guidance of your body and trust yourself.
4: Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from St. Andrew's Schools in downtown Honolulu, offering single-gender education for girls K through 12 and boys K through 6 with an open house April 23rd. Registration at open openhouse
0: This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Is there a connection between climate change and astronomy? Well, astronomer Christopher Phillips joins HPR's Dave Lawrence to discuss the industry's carbon footprint on your Monday Stargazer.
7: Stargazer Time, our weekly look into the massive universe around our tiny planet. Also, things we can try and spot In our island skies, and as always, we are so fortunate to tap into the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips, and wouldn't you know it, we've got him on the line right now. Hey Chris, welcome back. What do you have this week?
6: Hey Dave, it's good to be here. So this week, stargazers look out for a trio of morning planets in our eastern skies. Venus, Mars, and Saturn can be seen before dawn, with all three planets rising around 4 a.m. The moon this week will be passing through its new moon phase and so skies will be nice and dark. Perfect for stargazing.
7: And Chris this week has a little lesson for us on the connections between
6: climate change and astronomy? Right. When we think about the impact of climate change, one does not normally think of astronomy as a major contributor to global carbon emissions. However, a recent study published by the Institute for Astrophysics and Planetology in Toulouse, France, has estimated that the amount of carbon emitted globally by observatories around the world each year is in in the region of 1.2 million tons
7: yeah i was hearing a report about this on the radio and that's like as big as the uh entire countries like bulgaria or croatia i think
6: yeah it's quite astonishing and the study even examined the carbon footprint from large high profile projects such as the james webb space telescope and the square kilometer array in south africa
7: and what you've got to explain for everyone though chris is how a space telescope has a carbon footprint, although I'm guessing that it was something to do with the construction.
6: You're exactly right. First of all, we have the carbon emissions associated with fabrication, construction, transport, and of course, launch of the spacecraft. Then there are the ongoing emissions from ground-based facilities that operate the telescope. Even though JWST is out there in space, it still takes energy to run the project here on Earth. And how do we get on
7: the global reduction targets and start doing this properly, Chris?
6: Well, the astronomical community is going to have to find a way to slash the carbon footprint of astronomy by almost 20%, which is a considerable challenge, especially with larger ground-based telescopes being constructed in the near future. There may be ways to offset some of these emissions by using renewable energy sources to power facilities, but it's going to be tough. Very informative
7: report from you, Christopher Phillips, and appreciate it. You're welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave
4: Lawrence. Catch you next week for Stargazer, which you can find at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Ferraro Choi, architects for the new Honouliuli Middle School in East Kapolei. Committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design. FerraroChoi.com.
0: When University of Minnesota professor David Iona Chang sat down to write his book, the world and all the things upon it, he wanted to document the ideas and perspectives of early Native Hawaiian explorers as they traveled the globe. At first, he found records of many male Hawaiian laborers and a few particularly adventurous ali'i, but then, tucked away in the accounts of uh, English sailors and ship captains of the 1700s, he began to see the echoes of one Native Hawaiian woman's travels, referred to as Waini. Professor Chang spoke with the conversation Savannah Harriman poet about putting the pieces of Waini's life together in order to chart her remarkable journey. I wondered,
5: who is this person, what was she doing, and why are they calling her Waini? After I learned a little bit more about how they represented the Hawaiian language in English at this time, I realized that it was very likely an Englishman's pronunciation of Wahine. And I became fascinated by her. I read all the documents that I could uh, about her in accounts that were written by Englishmen.
0: And what do we know of her experience? What was what were her voyages like for her?
5: After Captain Cook stumbled into Hawaii in the late 1770s, a few different holiday ships, European ships, came through. And in the summer of 1787, when British ship was offshore at Kearakekua Bay, And what happened then is what often happened. People would get on va'a, they'd get on canoes and they'd paddle out to trade or to try to get aboard the ship to see what was there to explore this really novel space. And she was one of those people. And so she paddled out probably with goods to trade. And like some other people, she may have asked for passage aboard the ship. They were there and and many people wanted to, to, to explore this, to stay there. It was a very exciting experience, I think and she apparently asked to stay. Now the captain of that ship, a Captain Barclay had very, and this was very unusual, he'd brought along his wife. This is novel. Generally, they just sailed by themselves, but he had brought along a young English woman who he'd married and um, she took, the person whose only name we have for her is Kawahine. He, she took Kavahine on as a maidservant. And so, She sailed with this British trading vessel all the way to North America. They went up the Northwest coast of North America, along what we now call Vancouver Island, all the way up to Alaska, towards the Aleutian Islands, where they, the Englishmen, were trading to get furs. Then the next part of the trip was to take those furs and sail all the way to Southeast China to trade away the furs to get Chinese goods. And so she went all the way up the north coast of North America, all the way across the Pacific. She went to Macau. Macau is a Portuguese colony on the southeast coast right near Hong Kong. And they landed there to trade away their goods, the furs, and get things. So one can imagine these extraordinary experiences. She was, first of all, seeing this very exotic British sailing vessel different people speaking different languages with a different kind of sailing technology than the one that she knew as an OEV woman. And then sailing along the coast of North America, seeing native North America in all its glory and all its power in a time of affluence as trade is bringing in goods with, with the Europeans. And before the kind of stories of conquest and colonialism, which we now think of when we contextualize Native American history, she was in Native America before that. Then she sails all the way across the Pacific. That experience of the natural world, right, of being at sea, um, which is both a very Hawaiian experience, but also this is far to the north of where she and her ancestors had been, and sails across the North Pacific and then all the way down to what is now in, to China and Macau and spends a long period there serving Francis Barclay, the captain's wife there as her maidservant. So then we have to see what she saw there. Macau is an amazing city. It's a Portuguese trade colony, but there are people from all over the world there. There are Portuguese, there are English, of course there's many Chinese, there's people from the Middle East, there's people from Africa, there's Southeast Asians, because it's this trade center where people are flowing and where the Chinese empire allow a lot of kinds of interactions by all kinds of people, which would have been problematic in the heart of China itself. So this is a managed trade situation. So what that means is it concentrates all of these different kinds of people from all over the world. And Kawahine is in the middle of that. While she was in Macau, she grew ill. I don't know exactly what illness she caught, but many Native Hawaiians were growing ill at this time because our kūpuna were being exposed to diseases to which they had no immunities. She was originally going to travel along with the Barclays, but instead she was left behind in Macau. One source says that she asked to return to Hawaii. Another source suggests that the Barclays kind of abandoned her. She may not have been useful as a servant anymore because she was ill. And uh, But whatever it is, it's a tragic tragic circumstance. Um, she gets aboard another British sailing vessel, which says that they will take her back to Hawaii. She's not the only Native Hawaiian aboard that ship. There's a man from Maui, there's a boy, and there's an individual named Kaiana Ahula who we generally just refer to as Ka'yama. And it's very touching because this ship is sailing along and Kalahine is getting sicker and sicker. She's on what turns out to be her deathbed aboard this ship. And Ka'yama, who's this high-ranking ali'i, sits at her deathbed and cares for her and nurses her through her decline until she passes away and is deeply affected with sadness. And that's a very touching story to me because the stories that we have of our high-ranking ali'i from so long ago suggest that there is an unbridgeable gap between them and makaainana, right? And and non-chiefly people. And yet we see this extraordinarily high-ranking ali'i, and this woman who's almost certainly of very humble origins, coming together in a very affecting kind of event. As she was passing, she had collected along her travels a few things that were precious to her, some beautiful women's clothing in the European style, a bottle, I think, of perfume, a hoop, a mirror, these sorts of things. And she gives some of them to Kayana to take back to Hawaii for her to bring to her family. because They were gifts for her family it's beautiful to me to think about what she wanted to bring home and to share with her ohana from her voyages
0: what was it like to resurrect one woman to find all these disparate sources and then put the pieces back together of her life what did that that feel like to realize oh this is this is one life that i'm holding or recreating
5: it felt wonderful it, was, it felt incredibly exciting like a real privilege to be able to touch and represent a bit of the life of this kupuna. Because representing the lives of Kanaka from a very long time ago is difficult. But to the extent that we have sources, so many of them are about the al-inui, the highest of the high chiefs. And few of them are about makaainana, about what we call in English commoners. And when they exist, they tend to just be about a group, of people, the did this or did that, right? But there's no individuals. And then to have a woman emerge from the sources, these are the lives of the most poorly documented in the early period, the lives of non-elite wahine. To have an individual, to have actual stories about her, and then to have her engage in this extraordinary act of sailing across the Pacific and, and doing these things. It was thrilling for me to see that. It's the kind of thing that as a historian, but also as a Hawaiian person, mean a lot to me. She was the first Hawaiian woman to travel on a Western vessel away. Others would follow. She's extraordinary because it's easier to tell stories about her, but she can represent the experience, the goals, the curiosity, the exploratory spirit and the bravery Of many Wahine in the native Hawaiian past.
0: That was author David Iona Chang speaking with the Conversation Savannah Harriman-Pote about the life of Ka Wahine. To read more about her journey around the Pacific in the late 1700s, you can check out Chang's book entitled The World and All the Things Upon It. that's it for now tomorrow we hear more about the rail plan to halt a couple of stops short of Ala Moana so close and yet so far what do you think about this latest rail development good idea bad idea color talk back line 808-792-8217 miss something today and want to listen back all of our shows are archived find them on the conversation page at HawaiipublicRadio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz we will be back tomorrow for more of the conversation